Uh, Cult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. You're not on television or in the movies because you're good. You're there because you paid a price. Whatever the producer wanted from you. Now, it's witchcraft. In the early 70s, late 60s, it was homosexuality. Before that, it was the producer's couch, and so on. That was John Todd, also known as Lance Collins, a fundamentalist Christian preacher who claimed to have been a witch and top-ranking member of the Illuminati. We discussed the ideas he espoused as an itinerant preacher, that the music industry was placing demons in America's homes through rock record albums, that President Jimmy Carter was the son of Lucifer and would help to initiate a mass genocide of Christians led by Charles Manson as well as an army of prisoners, and that Star Wars was made by witches to popularize witchcraft ideas. Todd made himself an enemy of occultists of all stripes, the hippie counterculture, the Christian elite, and the mass culture industry. Today, we'll ask the question whether it's possible for Todd to have ever been a practicing occultist, whether his story of his own upbringing among witches, elevation to the Illuminati's Council of Thirteen, and Christian salvation at a Jesus Movement coffeehouse in Phoenix hold water. Who was the real John Todd, and why did he end his life in the behavioral disorder unit of a state mental health facility in South Carolina? My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors with my Ph.D. in things ritual, to be totally honest, but occult rituals, to be totally specific. I am joined by Brie Litterall, our metallurgic prophet. Hello. What's going on? I'm still in a pantry. Yeah, nothing has changed, really. This is part Mm -mm. two, so we're just carrying on here. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> John, any news from you in the pantry? Uh, no, not really. Just more food is around. It, can you eat it, or is it all, you know, like, raw? It's all, like, dried. I mean, I see some Tide Pods are looking kind of tasty, but nothing, nothing <laughs> no, too much. No, no, I just want to clarify, John is not eating Tide Pods right now. Not now. Let's no, make him pledge ever. so that he doesn't put anything in his mouth. We, the members of the secret order of, of alchemical actors, actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know, know it. it. Bree, do you know how to do this now? Plugs, um, dude. Plugs. What am I doing? Oh, plug, plug, plug. <laughs> well, wonderful. Uh, so this is... <laughs> This is pre-recorded, so uh, we are not up on our patrons, but I will give a general plug uh, for our Patreon page. Uh, we are adding members uh, literally every every episode, every week, uh, but uh, we could still use some more uh, because we have not quite reached our target goal for keeping the podcast funded, um, which we are, uh, you just got to do. You know, we got websites to pay for and equipment and things like that. Um, so if you've got a buck to spare and uh, you wouldn't mind joining the Patreon, and crew uh, that just even a dollar will get you access to all of our bonus episodes uh, and then as you give more there there are more uh, bonus treats and things that we offer uh, so that's all I got to say in the plugs today Bri you can close them up plug 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 ooh that last one was simultaneous yeah uh, so part two we are in part two this is chapter one part two uh, chapter one's title is Jack Chick 
Not an easy name to say. You don't know, Jack Chick. (laughs) (laughs) On page one of The Broken Cross, popular fundamentalist cartoonist Jack Chick credits John Todd as an ex-Druid priest for what he calls the authenticity of the occult information used in this story. Uh, essentially, John Todd spoke to Chick, this fairly popular fundamentalist cartoonist, and I, I own these comics. I bought them from Jack Chick's website. You can still buy these comics. Uh, they're from the 70s. Uh, and uh, John Todd told his story, and Jack Chick adapted it into two comic books. So this comic book begins uh, with a 14-year-old girl, a 14-year-old girl with a bare midriff, uh, I might add, uh, and camping gear, who is picked up by a van that looks like a boring version of the mystery machine from Scooby-Doo. Mm. Uh, it's just green instead of, you know, fun. And by page <laughs> okay. three, but otherwise it, they're pretty much identical. By page three... She's been drugged and sacrificed on an altar by Luciferian priests. So I hope you didn't get too attached to her. <laughs> That's a quick, that is a quick jump pages. in plot. Three pages in, she's dead. Uh, the author notes on page three that this is a ritual that takes place eight times a year in witches' covens. <laughs> Information. That sounds fake. That he has undoubtedly gleaned from the lips of John Todd himself. You don't think that covens are doing this eight times a year? Not eight times. Not eight times. That's way too many. How many times do you think? That's a weird number. How many times do we sacrifice a 14-year-old girl with a bare midriff? It's a weird number. Well, it depends, because you could do it for holidays. You could do it for, (laughs) like, no, you don't do it for fun, John. There's a fundamental, there is a practical reason behind a sacrifice. you could do it for fun. No. Oh, okay. But, Brie, now, not a 14-year-old girl. No, maybe, like... (laughs) You're talking, like... Like a, a squirrel or... 40-year-old man. I don't know. Oh, you're <laughs> Let's carry on with the comic, shall we? Jim Carter and Tim Clark, two buff, God-fearing Christians who might be mistaken for an interracial gay couple in any other context, these two guys decide to investigate. They're the heroes, by the way. In case you didn't guess. Oh, is that, you say Jimmy Carter? It is uh, it's Jim Carter. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> that is weird. Jim Carter and Tim Clark. So, uh, so they decide to investigate, but the local pastor, who is a liberal Christian, won't help. He also, by the way, doesn't believe in the second coming of Christ. The librarian of the town has removed all of the occult books from the shelves, and the sheriff tells them to quit poking their noses into the occult's business. Jim and Tim discuss how all this Luciferian occultism came about. You ready for this? So we, now we're going to yep. do a history lesson. Jack Chick loves to do these history lessons in his comics. Or that's what I gather from these two ep- books anyway. It started when Lucifer fell from heaven and got dominion of the atmosphere of the earth. So he wasn't in charge of the earth and he wasn't in charge of real heaven. He's just in charge of like, you know, the stratosphere. Then Adam fell, uh, and the war for human souls began on Earth itself, original sin. Then Nimrod started the practice of child sacrifice and satanic worship, which has persisted in certain branches of Catholicism. Oops, I meant Christianity today. (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, Jack Chick credits Alexander Hislop here uh, from a couple episodes back, our uh, Luciferian covert operations. 
Finally, the Wiccans, or wise ones, emerged during the fall of the Roman Empire. This was the birth of Wicca, Brie, during the fall of the Roman Empire. Oh, joy. Right. Not in uh, 1940 with Gerald Gardner, but during the fall of the Roman Empire. The Wiccans were... Of course. Right. Naturally. When else would it happen? (laughs) Not a moment too soon. The Wiccans were overshadowed by the Illuminati, who are now called the Moriah. I didn't actually look into why they use that word, but it's interesting. We learn that Satan's organization on Earth has funded the production of Godspell, also Jesus Christ Superstar, and the popular movie The Exorcist. Hmm. Fancy. Jim and Tim meet Jody, who wears a pentagram and tells them that Lucifer is one neat dude. <laughs> I hope I hope that's verbatim. That is. That's exactly what the character wow. says. She She's a witch because she totally craves the power. I'm not making any of this up. I'm taking as much as many of the words from the comic as I possibly can. Uh, totally craves the totally power. craves it. She just didn't dig the church scene because they don't do anything supernatural anymore. Satan totally allows her to control anyone except those Jesus freaks who repel her spells back onto her. When Jody learns from Jim and Tim that Jesus does protect people supernaturally, she realizes Jesus is super groovy, and she's sad that she broke a ceramic cross that she held upside down during her initiation into the witch cult. The broken cross, the peace sign that John was talking about the last episode. But say Jim and Tim, you already belong to Satan and never knew Christ. Fun fact, that's the truth for all of us. So you couldn't reject Christ or pledge yourself to Satan because Satan already had you and you never met Jesus. So here's your chance, Jody. You can be saved. After she decides to go Christian, her old gang attempt to sacrificially murder her, but she's saved by Jim and Tim, who make the occultists vomit by quoting the Gospel of Luke at them. I'm sorry. Holding it together. Jody is saved. The end. Okay, so there is this movie that was adapted from a comic series that's very similar, except instead of, like... Like the it's it's like the same thing except it's all surrounding the game Dungeons and Dragons, and it's pretty much that uh, Dungeons and Dragons is like Lucifer's game, and it's like this whole witch the cult same thing. Time, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the, it was also D&D came the out same in the time. Seventies, but it was this comic that was made, and then later on they made a movie about it, and it's the stupidest thing I've ever witnessed. What's it? Do you know the name? Oh, I don't remember. I'll have to look it up for you later. We'll put it. We'll put it in. Let's see. Anti Dungeons and Dragons comic. Yeah. Dark Dungeons. I think it's Dark Dungeons. No, it's Dark Dungeons. Darkest Dungeons is a video. That's Jack Chick. It is. That's the same guy. Okay, that's what I was wondering. (laughs) It's like the (laughs) stupidest thing I've ever watched. The movie version of it. Oh my god, it's so bad. He was big in the anti-occult scene, and I think that's why he was so drawn to John Todd. So a lot of the Crusader series was actually oriented toward an anti-occult perspective. Let's do uh, the other John Todd-inspired one. That's the uh, the Spellbound question mark. Oh, boy. And this one, uh, actually, this is issue 10 uh, of the Crusader series, and it features a cameo by Todd's alter ego, Lance Collins. Uh, And Collins professes to be a reformed druid priest, much like Todd does. The issue starts with a rock star nearly dying and confessing to Jim or Tim. I can't really tell them apart. One is black and one is white, but otherwise I I, I didn't really 
decide which one was Jim, which one was Tim. So uh, decides that he's so he confesses to them that he's not going to heaven. He's made a contract, presumably with the devil. Uh, but Jesus can break any cr- contract at all, says one half of the interracial, ambiguously gay pair, Jim and Tim. <laughs> J- 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 I love that. Jim and Tim. Yeah, I, I think they threw this whole series. I'm guessing. I've only read these two, but it seems like they're in every issue. They're like the heroes. So Jim and Tim go to a party at the rock star Bobby Dallas's house and are surrounded by occult believers and paraphernalia, like you have at any rock star party. Of course. Meanwhile, Lance Collins gives us a history lesson. Back to the history lesson. The Druids were old school Satanists who went door to door on Halloween night looking for a peasant girl or a princess to sacrifice. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> just, just house to house. Oh. You guys got a princess in there? <laughs> yeah. That was the original trick-or-treating. It was both a trick and a treat. No. (laughs) The treat is that they get a virgin. The trick is that you lose a virgin. So So they they take the princess, you know, like you do, and they sacrifice her to the horned hunter of the night, or perhaps the oak god of the underworld, or the god of death, also known as Lucifer. Are any of these familiar to you, Brie, as a neo-pagan? Like... It's like they take certain actual things and they change their names to be really stupid. Right, the horned god is a thing, but not horned hunter of the night, right? Yeah, no. Like, they just change them to be some weird extra version of what it actually is, just to make it seem worse, I think. Yeah, it it does make it a little spookier. Anyway, that's Halloween. (laughs) So, during these rituals, uh, the Druids played music. That's important. Uh, The Druids were outlawed and went underground around the year 180, but they have reemerged, propagating their satanic beats through the music of the Beatles and, more recently, Christian rock. Lance Collins convinces a congregation to burn their teenagers' rock records, and then the witch cult tries to run Lance off the road, shooting at his car. But Lance survives and lives to preach another day. A news reporter calls the record-burning fascist, but good Christians know better. The end. What? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yep, that's, that's, that's number <laughs> 10. I also can't get over Satanic Beats. Yeah, that sounds like, a, like an album name. It does. I would listen to that. I would too. You do listen to Satanic Beats whenever you put on the old rock records. Oh, well. Okay. Yeah. Just so you know. Like James Taylor, Satanic Beats. So, oh. um, Jimmy Buffett, Satanic Beats. But we're going to get to Jimmy Buffett actually later. Oh my God. Uh, not we? today. Sorry. <laughs> we'll get to Jimmy Buffett another time. Uh, so, yeah. So, these are, this is the content of the comics. And I'll, I'll tell you, I try to read these things with a mind like a person who would be open to these ideas, but it just gets so bizarre that it, it becomes difficult even for me in that mindset to continue along the the logic because it's just so out of whack from reality chapter two john todd the occultist so these comics uh reveal a caricature of occult believers and practitioners that as i've just said is so badly distorted it's it's laughable we're laughing we're doing some laughing 
it jives with the way that Todd tended to talk about his occultism, uh, which suggests that he didn't seem to understand much about occultism. But I actually tend to think that he was a real member of occult circles, but fabricated and exaggerated his experiences in order to appeal to the prejudices of his evangelical audience. Going back to what Bree was saying about those gods, that, you know, those names are distorted to make them seem spookier, but inside the name is the name of actual neo-pagan deities, right? Yeah, for the most part, yeah. That's sort of, like, that sort of captures the way Todd and the occult function. Todd as preacher when he's talking about the occult. Um, So let's, let's get to... Todd's occultism. He appears to have been a bona fide occultist, even if uh, he was taken to flights of fancy that undercut that authenticity. He's able to name drop major works in the demonological canon, like, for example, the Key of Solomon. And he makes reference to actual real-life participants in Gardnerian Wicca and Druidism. Remember that name, John? Yes. Oh my god. You had one job. Can you do it? Can you say the name? Yeah, John, say the name. Starts with the Raymond. Raymond yep. with a B. You got it, Rob. You're almost there. Raymond Buckland. <laughs> Raymond Buckland. Right. This is part two. That was so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's been two weeks. You're right. Uh, we haven't moved. Raymond Buckland, doctor of anthropology at Columbia, uh, Met uh, John, who met John Todd in the the New York in New York, and became his Illuminati handler. These are all remember all these details from part one. Uh, he was he was for real an actual person uh, and a actual leading figure in Gerald Gardner's nascent Wicca movement. Uh, Todd is incorrect in labeling Buckland a Columbia professor of anthropology. He actually immigrated to Long Island and worked as a flight attendant for British Airways. <laughs> so. Wow. Nowhere near anthropology professor. I mean, I guess both anthropology professors and flight attendants travel places. um, I guess. But (laughs) as part of their job, right? Uh, But Todd is right that Buckland was a significant importer of Gardnerian witchcraft into the United States. Buckland was sort of a major figure in forming various covens around the U.S., More telling, though, are his regular references to a man named Isaac Bonowitz. Bonowitz pops up as a sort of nemesis for John Todd in his narrative, perpetually conspiring against him. He somehow sponsors legislation to curtail Americans' gun rights, according to John's conspiracy theory, uh, and routinely harasses John Todd personally. The true story about Isaac Bonowitz is that he was a prominent neo-Druid, a real guy, an actual neo-Druid based in Michigan, who had refused to come to John Todd's aid when he was accused of sexual misconduct in 1976. He was a founder of the uh, Aquarian Anti-Defamation League, which is why Todd turned to to him in the first place, uh, and he stepped in when witches were unfairly accused uh, because of prejudice against neo-pagans. But Isaac Bonowitz concluded that Todd was abusing Wicca and Druidism in order to, you know, perform these sexual acts and uh, left him to the authorities. He basically wouldn't help him. So ever afterward, Todd would only invoke his name as this propagator of this evil conspiracy when talking to Christians. But the fact that his name comes up at all, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make, that Todd was probably a a legitimate occultist, that he actually ran in occult circles, that he probably did make a phone call to Isaac Bonowitz. You know, he's not he's not just talking about Lucifer or Darth Vader. Like he's he's dropping some deeper cuts in real Wiccan practice and Wiccan circles. 
On a more obscure note historically, Todd makes reference to the disappearance of William Morgan, an early 18th century anti-Mason. In 1825, Morgan had been planning to publish a book exposing the Freemasons' various secret rites and practices when he was suddenly thrown into debtor's prison in Ontario County, New York. While the jailer was away, a group of men convinced the jailer's wife to release Morgan into their custody and brought him on a two-day's journey to Fort Niagara, the last place Morgan was ever seen. He may have been drowned in the Niagara River or paid to disappear, but Morgan was never seen or heard from again, dead or alive, and is on that long list on Wikipedia of missing persons. That's super spooky mysteriously disappeared persons yeah so it is a cool it's an interesting story i might one day like to get to an episode on on this guy but uh john todd knows about him and references him accurately as an anti-mason who mysteriously disappeared um so uh, you know it, it seems like he's poking around in occult literature as well like he knows about these weird deep cutty kind of things he also knows people in the wiccan community and the druid community in the united states at this time period this guy is so weird it is isn't it odd yeah so but then he does and goes goes and does this this bizarre thing we're like oh yeah rob he, he seems so authentic but but then okay then then it falls apart like in one word it falls apart his authenticity begins to degrade when he starts talking about the source book of all witchcraft now listen closely when i say what this source book is it is the necromonicon <laughs> the necro Mon-icon. Now, John, why are you laughing at the pronunciation of the necro icon Because he switched a couple letters around. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It is a malapropism of H.P. Lovecraft's fictional yeah. Necronomicon of Alhazred. But over and over again, this is not like he screwed up once. Like, he does it constantly. He mentions this book many times when he's preaching and he always always does it as the monicon not the nomicon uh it's kind of nerdy but it's it really shows you that in some instances he he just isn't digging below the surface he claims that all witches all witch texts have been derived from this source the necromonicon oh including the book of shadows and the book of mormon no what <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Yes, Mormons are totally witches. Yes. Um, <laughs> they made Star Wars. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> witches who made Star Wars. Yeah, George Lucas, and they're all a bunch of Mormon witches. Mitt Romney is just... Oh, my God. Mitt Romney, the guy who played Chewbacca. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was, does anybody, do you guys know his name? He just died recently, didn't oh, he? Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. It was it like two years ago? Yeah. Uh, so Todd seems to think we'll put that in the uh, we'll put that on the resources page. Todd seems to think that Lovecraft was a genuine occultist. HP, that is. Uh, he tells one congregation that a recent mov- movie adaptation of Lovecraft's Dunwich Horror, which actually our group is currently working on an adaptation of uh, radio style, uh, but this movie starred Sandra D. Uh, he said it included a real de- depiction of occult practice. The Dunwich Horror is one of a handful of Lovecraft stories that makes direct reference to the Necronomicon. The plot centers on a family who manifest monsters on Earth by mating a human woman with one of Lovecraft's otherworldly gods. 
The cross-dimensional monsters and invocations read from an imagined book do make for good reading, but they have nothing to do, Bree, back me up here, with any known occult practice whatsoever. No, they do not. Lovecraft was not an occultist at all. He, he had a fantasy of occultism at, at best. Yeah. In one reference to the Necromonicon, Todd confuses it with the Book of Enoch, saying how it related a version of Genesis in which the sons of God had sex with the daughters of men and produced giants. How do you confuse... Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how he confuses... It's a good question, Bree, but it, he just because he doesn't read these books, he just knows yeah. their titles. Wow. He might not even be aware that the Book of Enoch not even, exists. He does not even know their titles. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. The titles of fake yeah books within books. Yeah, because that's not the title of anything. The necro. Well, it is now. I think somebody's probably some Lovecraft you know person has written a Necronomicon, but at the time it wouldn't have existed as a book even. Uh, he uh, let's see what else. He incorporates some of what at the time was cutting edge extraterrestrial theory. He says great wise ones descended to Earth from another world, intermated with the people there, and produced the race of witches. So we did this on our uh, extraterrestrial Armageddon episode, uh, and and these th- these ideas were coming out in the 1970s. That was the Nephilim, right? Yeah. Uh, which is also it's also a word that's sometimes used to describe the giants who are the offspring of the. Uh, angels and daughters of men. Yeah. So yeah. it's a it's working both ways. Either the fathers are aliens or they're angels. Um, so modern day witches, according to Todd, believe that these wise ones come back and check up on us. But this doesn't mean that UFO sightings are necessarily genuine encounters with beings from other planets either because Todd also says that although the witches seem to believe in alien life and its influence on humanity, they also tend to conjure UFOs with the help of demons and ignorant humans mistake them for legitimate extraterrestrials. So there's a lot of weird UFO things lingering inside of Todd's theories as well. Occultists are not confined to amusing pranks, though, in the Todd universe. Witchcraft encompasses an extremely dangerous international cult that members can never quit. Manson belongs to a brotherhood called the Process that engages in human sacrifice. This is a reference again to the Process Church, uh, which we mentioned last time, founded by two former Scientologists in the United Kingdom, often identified as a form of Satanism. In any case, Todd believes they carry out contract killing. He says they are so radical that in order to kill me, John Todd, they would gladly give their own life up right in a meeting. That sounds fake. Right? Because he's so important, right? The the conspiracy theory also makes John Todd out to be, he is his own superhero in his theory. Um, $50,000 apparently came down for the killing of Sharon Tate. And Manson only made $2,000 of that. So Manson's got a pretty bad contract with the Illuminati. The only way uh, out of the Illuminati witch cult is to convert to Christianity. Otherwise, they will kill you. She was having a baby, meaning Sharon Tate, and she didn't want the baby to be raised up in it, Todd said. She wanted out. After his conversion, Todd visited a meeting of 5,000 witches with some of his fellow Christians in hopes of converting some of them. One of the witches snuck out of the meeting. This is, again, all according to Todd. One of the witches snuck out of the meeting and told Todd that they could bring him converts, but only if he had a safe place for them to go. 
At the time, Todd didn't have such a place, but during the course of his ministry, he went around collecting funds to create a secret halfway house. This is for real. He told one congregation that he'd already built a retreat, but some pastors interfered with the security of the place, and the occult was watching and came in and machine-gunned three girls to death and one worker. I don't think that's real. I don't think that really happened. Okay, I hope not. But some extreme stuff. Yeah. So the only real part in that is that Todd did go around soliciting funds to build a halfway house for former Illuminati witch cult members. The girls were ages 15 to 18, our victims here. $10,000 is the minimum bounty they put on a witch's head when she or he quits and they hire professional killers to find and murder these people. This terrifying narrative was part of Todd's attempt to convince his audience that witchcraft was real and an apparent threat to Christians. He claimed that 75% of Americans participated in the occult. Let me say that again. 75% of Americans participated in the occult and that it was the fastest growing religion in the country. Yeah, that would make me more famous than Joe Rogan and Call Her Daddy combined, if that were true. (laughs) But 75% of the United States or active occultists, and it was the fastest-growing religious movement. We're not even a single religious movement, right? We're a, we're a collection, a loose collection of various different religious movements. But boy, would we be famous. Yeah, wow. <sighs> so that brings us to uh, chapter three. We're moving quick today. Mike Warnke is the name of chapter three. Also the name of a man. I was about to say, it who is, sounds like a name. Yeah, so... Uh, Todd was not actually the only born-again Christian to claim to have been recruited from the ranks of the occult. Of course not. In 1970—of course not. (laughs) Why would he be? Such a good story. But it is, because in 1972, Mike Warnke published The Satan Seller, which he said was a memoir about his rise to the level of high priest among the Satanists and his decision to quit Satanism for Jesus. Warnke gained significant publicity with his story and popular culture attention, and that attention eclipsed Todd. A recording of Warnke describing his conversion from Satanism to Christianity at a coffee house became a hit on Christian radio stations, and he went on to sell more than a million records, make an appearance on Oprah, and consult with law enforcement on crimes involving occult themes. So Warnke became much more famous than Todd. I do want to do a little, you know, just side note here about these tapes. John Todd's fame was mostly a product of people recording his lectures on tapes, which you can hear on YouTube, as I mentioned. Um, And they would just record the tapes, copy the tapes, and pass them around to these fundamentalist congregations. And uh, Warnke's fame sort of began that way. It's a very word-of-mouth, under uh, you know, uh, grassroots fame. Raised by his half-sister in California, Warnke claimed to have been an orphan. At college, he was known among his friends for the wild tales he'd tell to amuse them and the outlandish costumes he liked to wear, including panhandling and visiting the local bar in priest's robes. What? In his book. Yeah, right? (laughs) So he's, he's a funky character. In his book, Warnke said that while he was in college, he was recruited into Satanism by someone called Dean Armstrong. Armstrong encouraged Warnke to give up drinking and take up marijuana, peyote, and mescaline, which, you know, gateway drug, alcohol, to peyote and mescaline. Yeah, of course it is, Rob. (laughs) 
Warnke said uh, that he and his friends joined an LSD experiment held on campus, uh, of which there is actually no record of that LSD experiment ever taking place. Dean Armstrong invited him to join in satanic rituals in an orange grove featuring a nude woman, a cat sacrifice, and demonic possession. Why do they always got to sacrifice a cat? Because they're dumber than dogs? I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's a real theory. I don't know. It's, it's true. It's true. Sorry, it's true. It's brain size. Um, <laughs> they feel worse All about right, sacrificing Rob. a dog. <laughs> cat There's people, other dog people. You could sacrifice. It doesn't have to be a cat or a dog. There's like what would squirrels you, what, and shit. I don't know. Politicians? Okay. So <laughs> what was it? Just said politicians. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, we'll get to them. So we actually sort of have already been there. Uh, but anyway, much like Todd, Warnke rose to the level of a high priest and was gifted an apartment that came complete with two sex slaves. Of nice. course it did. In reality, his college friends experimented with Ouija boards and table tilting, spiritualism rather than hardcore occultism. As a high priest, Warnke said that he began flying around the country as an emissary for Satan, meeting Anton LaVey at one point and traveling to Salem. The pressure of being a satanic high priest and consuming lots of drugs, though, eventually got to him, and on the verge of a nervous breakdown, his sex slave caused him to overdose and dropped him off the doorstep of a, on the, a doorstep of a hospital. So she overdosed him and dropped him at the hospital. Your sex slaves, you think that they're your sex slaves, but in fact, they're your sex overlords. Mm. After he cleaned himself up, he joined the Navy. He moved with his new wife to San Diego, where he attended church at the Scott Memorial Baptist, led by none other than Tim LaHaye, which you may know better under the name Timothy LaHaye, co-author of the popular Doomsday series. Do you know this? No. Left Behind, the Left Behind series. Oh. Of which, yeah, we, we talked about it in uh, the last... Okay. Was it the last series that we did? Yeah, yeah I think so. Uh, featuring Kirk Cameron mm-hmm. as a person who's left behind. So, uh, he began working with Melody Land. Remember Melody Land? Yes. The uh, megachurch by uh, yeah. Disneyland? That he hand-delivered the checks to. Yeah, that uh, Todd did. But now we're talking about Mike Warnke. And Mike Warnke, this is true, did actually work for Melody Land uh, as part of the Drug Prevention Center hotline, reaching out to hippies in an effort to convert them. Together with Dave Balsinger and Morris Cerula, he conceived of the Witchmobile containing occult <laughs> artifacts. What? Like That's the most the like, Witchmobile. TV preacher thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, were you guys around when we did the... Uh, what you call it, the uh, Bay Fest, the Chesapeake Bay I Festival. I was, yeah. I wasn't. And we had the uh, the the bus, the aquarium bus. What yeah. was that called? Oh. Come to the thing. Oh, it was like... Uh, anyhow. Yeah. Did you know the name of it? It was a bus full of fish. Yes. So this is like that, but it's a, a witchmobile. It's a bus full of occult things. Oh, I was just picturing a bunch of witches on a bus. <laughs> no, because it's meant to like like it's like a little museum of the occult that's meant to like scare you away from it uh, that just sounds attractive to me not scary it uh, it had some graveyard dirt on it and also some fortune telling spray oh that's badass wait, yeah wait, i don't know what fortune telling spray is but was. oh i don't know what that is i'm talking about the graveyard dirt <laughs> no. i think he made it up <laughs> um 
So Balsinger worked with, well, Graveyard Dirt's a real, a relatively real thing in voodoo, but I, I yeah. have no idea about fortune telling spray. So Balsinger and Warnke uh, developed Warnke's first book called The Satan Seller. Uh, the evidence Balsinger collected to corroborate Warnke's story consisted of things like visits to sites where fires had been lit and graffiti placed on walls. Um, and was not the, that evidence really was not especially persuasive, given that the events in the Satan Cellar had taken place six years earlier. So, in other words, Warnke was like, "Come to this, uh, come over to this site where we did our sacrifices." And they got there, and he was like, "Yeah, six years ago, we totally killed cats here." But like, how would you know? It's like, yeah, <laughs> six, six years, years ago, and there's nobody there to cooperate. Yeah. Well, okay. clear evidence of burn marks here on the bricks. <laughs> That's so vague. Uh, yeah, I don't even... So Warnke was discharged from the army as a conscientious objector, and he began to pursue the ministry full-time. Logos published Warnke's Satan Seller amid a boom in Christian publishing, including Jack Chick's comic books featuring, among other things, John Todd's battles with the occult underground. There's actually a story of Todd and Warnke meeting. At some point in the 1970s, Todd visited Warnke at the hotline and accused him of stealing his act. <laughs> given the timing of Warnke's book it's actually unlikely that Warnke stole anything from Todd but uh, Todd's attitude also suggests that he didn't take anything from Warnke either they weren't plagiarizing each other they were just both tapping into a kind of Christian zeitgeist in their own way separately chapter 4 the influence of John Todd the power of both John Todd and Mike Warnke's message can't be underestimated. In 1984, Warnke Ministries brought in $900,000 in donations, and in 1985, Warnke collected a million dollars from Christians riveted to his message by the satanic panic sweeping the nation. He even appeared on a 2020 special revolving around the perceived rise in satanic activity around the nation. Uh, Todd unlike Warnke, was not as good at capitalizing on what he was doing. He just wasn't as organized or as mercenary, I think, as Warnke was. So I'm sort of using Warnke as a way of showing how into this the American public was at the time period. The bizarre light of Todd's celebrity shone into similarly bizarre locations in American culture, inspiring conspiracists of various stripes. In the early 1980s, when Todd was living in the forests of Montana, his tapes fell into the hands of Ricky, uh, sorry, Randy and Vicky Weaver. The Weavers were on a perilous slide into radicalization, uncritically consuming anti-Masonic and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Randy invited Todd to speak at the banquet room of a Holiday Inn in Cedar Falls, Iowa, where the Weavers were living at the time. Journalist Jess Walter, who wrote about the Weavers in his book Every Knee Shall Bow, described Todd pacing the floor of the Weavers' home after his talk, a pistol on his hip, with a small but intense crowd gathered around him, including at least one suspected neo-Nazi. Huh. Todd, yeah, about that. Yikes. Uh, okay. Todd was, I mean, he was, so, I mean, the point is kind of famous, right? That somebody in Montana is calling him up to do this thing, but he's not that famous because when he arrives, only neo-Nazis and a couple of weird uh, conspiracy theory Christians show up to the Holiday Inn to and, watch and him talk. And because it's just Montana. Yeah, anyway, right? Yeah, right, because you can only get 15 people together in Montana at any given moment. This is very true. 
Todd was only one link in a long chain that would leave the we- lead the Weavers to eventually sell their home in Cedar Falls and build their own cabin in a sparsely populated region in northern Idaho. The Weavers, who came to believe that the end times were imminent and the government was conspiring to prevent the white race from attaining its rightful supremacy at the head of the nation, met tragedy during a siege at their home in Ruby Ridge, Idaho. In August 1992, when Randy Weaver failed to appear for a firearms charge, six U.S. Marshals came to his home. A shootout ensued, and one Marshal and Weaver's 14-year-old son and dog were killed. Randy's wife, Vicki, was subsequently killed by a sniper, and Randy surrendered on August 30th after 11 days of tense negotiations. So my point here is more that Todd is feeding these these people, feeding conspiracy militia folks, you know, in the backwoods, uh, these sort of anti-government forces uh, with extreme fundamentalist views. Jeez. Remember, he's carrying guns. You know, he matches pretty well with their ideology. Chapter 5. Fraud. (laughs) Oh, boy. I can only guess what this is going to be. Yeah, we're uh, we're on the downward slope here. Although Todd's conspiracy theories and personal narrative persuaded many like-minded people to follow in his footsteps, he also had his fair share of detractors. Writers for Christianity Today and Cornerstone Magazine published exposés catching Todd between his vacillating personalities. These accounts, divorced from Todd's self-aggrandizement and myth-making, give the best idea of who Todd actually was. Todd was born in Ohio around 1950. All right, so here we go. (laughs) Let me pause. All that stuff I told you in part one, and pretty much everything I've told you up to now, has included a lot of Todd's own perspective on himself. Now, finally, I'm going to tell you what we know for sure is true about this man. All right. He was born in Ohio around 1950 and suffered from epilepsy from an early age. His ex-wife Sharon said he had an unhealthy relationship with his mother. We're not clear exactly what that means. His mother had three children by three different fathers and neglected all of them. So we know at least that to be true. He often went to school dirty and his teachers washed him. So we've been hating on him, but now now we feel a little bad, right? Yikes, yeah. He enlisted in the military in 1969 and was stationed in Germany. This jives with some of what he said. He served there for less than a month before being discharged for mental health reasons under Section 8. The Army found that he was emotionally unstable and may have brain damage as a result of childhood beatings. Todd, they said, yeah, it's rough. Uh, In their report, they said that Todd finds it difficult to distinguish fantasy from reality and has threatened both homicide and suicide. In Phoenix, Arizona, a 19-year-old Todd met Pastor James Outlaw of the Jesus Name Church and asked to be re-baptized. He was with his wife, Linda, and her four-year-old child, Tanya. Todd claimed to have become a witch in the Navy, but was converted at a storefront Pentecostal church in Southern California. According to Outlaw, Todd disappeared and surfaced again in 1972 or early 1973 without his wife, saying that they'd had a vision and chosen to separate. The good Reverend Outlaw wasn't thrilled with Todd's divorce, but in the spirit of Christian charity, set him up as a busboy in a Mexican restaurant and connected him with Ken Long, a Jesus movement leader who operated a coffee house. Is this all sounding familiar? Yeah. 
Todd began working at the coffee house and performing miracles. This doesn't come up, actually, in much of what Todd says of himself. Uh, but the stories of this time period is that he healed a handicapped boy's leg wow. in the coffee house. He married uh, Sharon Garver in 1973. Soon, allegations began to surface that he was seducing teenage girls at the coffee house where he was apparently also performing miracle healings. Two of the girls admitted to having sexual relations with him, uh, and four girls said that he'd attempted to convert them into a witch's coven, and uh, Ken Long fired him. It was probably around this time that Todd went to work for Zodiac Productions. Do you remember Zodiac Productions? No. No? Mm -mm. (laughs) Uh, So this was the record label he claimed to work for. He claimed that he had worked for them in the early 1970s before he'd been converted. Remember that he was actually converted in 1969. Uh, But Zodiac Productions, as a record company, uh, is completely untraceable, even though Todd claimed they were behind all major labels in the rock industry. However, the company named Zodiac Productions does exist. Uh, In fact, they were a producer of gay pornography. Oh, okay. Huh. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we we can sort of connect the dots ourselves there. Yeah. He he claimed to work for Zodiac Productions. He claimed it was a record label, oh. but um, I, it seems likely that Todd actually did work for a gay pornography company for some period. Okay. Todd, uh, Todd next appeared on a local telethon where he claimed to be the personal warlock for the Kennedy family that JFK had faked his own death and that he had just been on Kennedy's yacht with him. Oh, boy. He further claimed that Governor George McGovern murdered a girl as part of a satanic ritual. The telethon raised $25,000, and Doug Clark invited him to participate in his Amazing Prophecies program. It was at this point that Jack Chick first heard... uh, Todd through Doug Clark's Amazing Prophecies group in 1973 and was inspired to create the first of his two comics based on Todd's conversion narrative and conspiracy theories. Todd moved to Santa Ana and began holding Bible studies. His wife reported that he mixed the Bible with witchcraft teachings and was attempting to seduce some of the girls in his Bible study group. There are a lot of patterns in Todd's life. He was confronted by pastors at Melodyland in 1973 and stormed out of the confrontation. Todd was both witnessing to Sharon's relatives and teaching witchcraft to them. After impregnating his wife's teenage sister, him and his wife split and he moved to Dayton, Ohio. So uh, Melodyland, right, is another enemy of Todd, much like Isaac Bonowitz, that becomes an important part of his conspiracy theory, uh, conspiring against the good Christians of America everywhere. But you can see, and if we look at his actual bio, the reason he dislikes them is because they confronted him about this weird quasi-pagan preaching he was doing and this attempt to seduce teenage girls, or I guess success in the case of his wife's sister. In Dayton, he started a relationship with Sheila Spoonmore uh, and opened his occult bookshop called The Witch's Cauldron, which he ran from 1974 until 1976. He married Sheila after two years together. Parents of local teenagers, however, began to complain that he was corrupting their children, and a 16-year-old girl accused Todd of conducting witchcraft rites in the nude and forcing her to have oral sex. 
Todd served two months of a six-month sentence after Jack Chick, the, the comic book artist, intervened to get him released for medical reasons. Uh, oh Todd was apparently having seizures while he was in jail. He returned to Phoenix, swore to the good reverend outlaw that he was done with witchcraft for good, and this man, what a man, got Todd a job again as a cook at a local steakhouse. Like, there's a true Christian, this reverend outlaw. My goodness. I guess. That's kind of a great name. That is a great reverend name. Reverend outlaw? Yeah, pretty badass name, too. Especially in Phoenix, Arizona, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was a lot of fry cooks. Wild West. Uh, okay, so, but just like last time with poor Reverend Outlaw, Todd quickly disappeared uh, without so much as a word to the Reverend before he left. It's clear that Todd did not make a full conv- conversion to Christianity on Labor Day in 1972, because after all, he's running the Witch's Cauldron in 1974. Uh, in fact, he vacillated back and forth between neo-pagan and Christian religious communities from the time he was 19, and perhaps even before then. Todd gave a tape of one of his anti-occult sermons to a guy called Mike Griffin of the Faith Baptist Church in Canoga Park, California, where Todd was a member. The tape had been recorded over another tape. Uh, So we used to do this back when we had tapes. (laughs) VHS VHS tapes. Yeah. You you know, you make a sex tape with your wife, but then you would, uh, you know, tape you know, the kid's birthday party. And then, you know, later you'd be like, oh, let's watch that birthday party. And then it would, you know, wonk out. And then you'd go back to the sex tape, which you'd record it over because it was longer than the birthday. So this is essentially what happened to Todd, not the sex tape thing. uh, Because we're talking about an audio tape. We're talking about a cassette tape here. Okay. Okay. So uh, the tape had been recorded over this other tape. uh, And when the sermon that he'd recorded the Christian sermon ran out. It switched back to the original content recorded on the 3rd of March, 1976. uh, And that content was of Todd explaining in the context of a class on witchcraft given in his occult bookshop, The Witch's Cauldron, that witchcraft was superior to Christianity because it had been around for 8,000 years. (laughs) Oh, that's great. (sighs) Yeah. Much older than Christianity was the argument he was making. So here are these Christians huddled up listening to this tape of John Todd's sermon, and suddenly it goes, and I think that witchcraft is superior to Christianity, and on and on. (laughs) That was a really, really good cassette impression. It was. I'm I'm impressed. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And I haven't heard a cassette tape in, uh, like, since 98. So, yeah. (laughs) Thank you, John. I used to, I, when I was a kid, I did used to record on cassette tapes. I, so I guess I, I was a, a podcaster back then too, but you know, without the digital media to podcast out to. But you had to make all the sound effects yourself. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did indeed. Uh, Todd had confessed to uh, some backsliding and claimed that the tape was only made to drum up business at his occult bookstore. You run in, in uh, some Christian circles, John. Have you heard this term backsliding? Um... Sometimes, yeah. When you like fall back it, into your old sinful ways post uh, born againness. Yeah, like they don't. I haven't really heard that word a lot, but I've definitely heard about that type of thing happening. And it's sort of like a get out of jail free card. Like you confess to backsliding, and they're like, "Oh yeah, all right, that happens." Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're but you're here now, so it's all good. Uh, so. When the church confronted Todd with the tapes, he shrugged, dropped his automatic pistol, picked it back up, and left. Oh, so, that's <laughs> scary. Okay. Yeah. 
power move there, uh, or like yeah. just an open threat, really. <laughs> oh my God. The church revoked his membership as well as their endorsement of his ministry. But in 1978, Todd was tapped by the good Reverend Tom Barry to tour church churches in uh, tour churches in Maryland. That's what I thought you were saying. What did you think I was saying? We thought you were talking about straight up torturing a church. Torture churches. Well, no. Uh, so, <laughs> torture. It's like a tongue twister. So he went through Maryland, PA, and Indiana at the invitation of this guy, Tom Barry, uh, who just was anxious to believe his story. According to Christianity Today, this was the peak of Todd's fame. So this was after multiple episodes of churches discovering that he was going back and forth with pagans and carrying guns and seducing girls. He performed to crowds of thousands. Uh, And while some pastors regretted their association with him after the tour, the Reverend Tom Barry was a true believer, encouraging Christians to gather weapons and ammunition to prepare for Todd's coming apocalypse. During his second, much longer incarceration in the 1990s, Todd threatened to sue the state of South Carolina for failing to allow him to practice his Wiccan beliefs. Oh, no. We're back again. Yeah. In the 1990s, he's a Wiccan again. At the same time, he was telling Fritz Springmeier that he had been persecuted for being a member of a fundamentalist group called the Christian Underground. So he was claiming to be both. He was suing the state for not letting him practice as a Wiccan, and he was telling this guy Fritz Springmeier, who we'll hear more about in a moment, that he was part of this Christian Underground. Can you just pick? He's playing both sides, so he always comes out on top. But he doesn't. He doesn't come out on top. Well, yeah, it, I think I think it's true, and Fritz Spring, Springmeier makes this conclusion as well, that Todd may have had something like a dissociative identity issue. That makes sense. Um, so, it seems amazing, uh, to like, as we're talking about this, right, I, I hope my, my occulty audience out there, my witches and neo-pagans and spiritualists and all, all y'all, are thinking to yourself, how, how did anybody believe this guy? Uh, but a lot of people did. Like thousands and thousands of people bought this message uh, and were willing to show up for it and endorse it. So why would this conservative Christian audience be willing to believe any of what he said, given his continuing relationship with neo-paganism and the occult? Writing for Cornerstone, uh, Gary Metz cut to the heart of the issue. I'm going to quote him directly here, because I, th- I think this really does say so much about the Todd phenomenon. He said, there are those Christians who simply want to believe what Todd says. There is something inside all of us that desires to be exalted while seeing those we just don't like put down. This is called pride or sin. So he's just telling them what they wanted to hear. And it was making them feel superior because they weren't part of these groups. Um, So let's take a break now for today's segment, Occult Take. Today's quote Uh, comes from one of the Todd tapes. Todd is describing his upbringing in witchcraft. And uh, Mickey Moore, our friend over at Occult Connecticut, uh, who's the the very name of the podcast is an homage to the uh, Occult Confessions here. Uh, Mickey Moore is going to uh, give us that quote uh, and then his occult take as an occultist on this quote. Mickey? Good morning, afternoon, uh, night, evening, etc. 
Confessors, this is your um, dear peripheral friend, Mickey. Dr. Rob had sent me a quote a while ago from who he told me uh, was an occultist turned fundamentalist preacher. I have not, I've not read the quote. I have made sure to stave off on doing so because I, I want to respect the idea that this is supposed to be my gut reaction, so let's get into this. <clears throat> quote, They take you very, very young, even before they start talking about the so-called positive aspects of witchcraft, they talk about the negative aspects of Christianity. They brainwash you from very early childhood that the Christian is the most evil being or creature in the universe, that he wants nothing more than to take the everyday witch out and shoot him, burn him, whatever he can do. So, okay, right there, for starters, having this guy deride people who practice whatever whatever this blanket term witchcraft is, um, he's taking that and claiming that they are the enemy, and the reason that they are the enemy is because they do exactly what he is doing to them. That's That's silly. And then beyond that, you have this idea of people taking you very young into these cults, which I am going to just go out and say that these, uh, they, they don't exist. <laughs> like there is, there is no basis for that other than like sensationalized stories and like, yeah. Okay. So like people have their quote unquote covens, but you know, I mean, how often is a coven just, you know, Martha and the gals getting together, having a few drinks and reading tarot. Nothing against that, of course. I'm not saying that as if it's a negative thing, but you know, it's like no one's getting together with this idea of, okay, how can we murder the Christians today? You know, I mean, that's, I mean, when in Rome, I guess, but uh, sorry, two on the nose. Um, anyways, I don't believe in the concept of these secret cults that take your children and i mean okay so you have for example children of god and things like that but okay those are christian cults right i don't i don't really believe that there's these rampant widespread you know it's it's establishing an enemy which is a common way of getting people to rally together it's uh yeah i don't know uh, uh the whole the whole thing just reeks of yeah i mean like you're saying uh very very sensationalized and exaggerated to uh inspire fear in people which is you know i guess your typical manipulation tactic and if you if you want followers you're going to have to manipulate them in in some sense uh in you know in a, in a preacher sense i don't necessarily believe that uh manipulation is a necessary method of acquiring followers for say i don't know like oh well, let's take this podcast for example right i don't i don't feel manipulated by the alchemical actors or dr rob i feel uh this was a very grassroots kind of thing but hey look at that right occultists are polite they don't they don't force you and that's that's the other thing is uh the idea that um these witches are going to go out of their way to teach you that all Christians are evil and want to have you murdered. First of all, the historical precedent would suggest that they are correct in saying that. Yeah, if you if you are a practicing witch and you were to tell a fundamental guy, because I keep saying Christian, and I, I, I want to make the 
delineation that I, I, I'm talking about these very fundamental Christians because I believe you can be a Christian without being a, um, I believe the Latin term is asshole, but which people, quote unquote, pagan, yada, yada, etc. Um, some of the most respectful in terms of other people's spiritual beliefs. And frankly, I, I find a lot of people who are occultist or, you know, occult adjacent or what have you have to sort of give this caveat to preface everything like, but I'm okay with Christians because there's sort of this stigma that you inherently hate Christians, which is dudes like this kind of perpetuating that belief. Um, I don't, I don't find that to be true. In fact, uh, quite the opposite, but, um, that's my spiel on this quote. Thank you for having me do this. This is um, a good mental exercise, and uh, I hope I didn't fumble my words too much. Uh, back to you, Rob, or Olivia, or someone. Okay, bye. Is this chapter six? Yes. Chapter six. Prisoner. You should probably say chapter five as well, just to be safe. You already said chapter five. It was fraud. Chapter five was fraud? Yeah. Oh, okay. I remember because I made a comment about it. Never mind. It's chapter six. You're right. I apologize. In 1995, Fritz Springmeier, a leading proponent of Kathy O'Brien's mind control sex slave theories, uh, which will be the subject of our next episode, published his book, Bloodlines of the Illuminati which included the transcript of a tape that John Todd made while he was in prison. Eight years later, Springmeyer himself would wind up behind bars, convicted of armed robbery with a semi-automatic weapon in Portland, Oregon. What? These are some of the craziest people. Yeah, these oh are, I just, when you, it's insane, right? <sighs> and yeah. Like when you just Google these guys, this is the stuff that comes up. <laughs> Anyhow. Tracing the Collins bloodline, Springmeyer was unsure whether Joan Collins, the actress, was a member of the Illuminati, and he was fairly confident that the astronaut Michael Collins, who was on the first trip to the moon, uh, (laughs) he was fairly certain, though, that Michael Collins, the astronaut, was not a member of the Illuminati. Okay, good. (laughs) Not so sure about Joan Collins, but feeling pretty good about Michael Collins. Uh, but he was open to the idea, Phil Collins, I'm not sure either, uh, but he was open to the <laughs> idea that Neil, <laughs> right? I can feel it coming in the air, but he was open to the idea that Neil Armstrong actually might be, which is just like a side note of Michael on Michael Collins. Oh <laughs> Neil Armstrong doesn't have the Collins name, but uh, Springmeyer says the first flag on the moon was the Scottish Rite's Masonic flag. You thought it was the American flag. It was the Scottish Rite's flag. The American flag is only in the Stanley Kubrick uh, fake of the event. Uh, The Todds were a splinter group of the Collinses, by the way. Both uh, Lincoln and Madison were married to Todds. Mary Todd Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln was also a Rosicrucian, by the way, and a member of the Order of the Lilies Council of Three, along with prominent occultist Pascal Beverly Randolph, featured in our very first episode here on Occult Confessions, and also the war hero Ethan Allen Hitchcock. At first, Springmeyer does not name Todd as his source, saying only that he's gotten his information about the Collins family from, quote, an ex-insider who is now a Christian. But the stories he tells bear a distinct similarity to Todd's own tales. The Collins family, 
immigrated from England to Salem, bringing witchcraft with them. They were not prosecuted during the Salem witch trials, but manipulated the trials to have innocent Christians killed. Is this all sounding familiar? Yes. It's almost exactly Todd's account of his ancestor, Francis Collins. This ex-insider also provided a vivid account of a highly secret, high-level satanic meeting that took place in 1955. Listen to this. Representatives from the 13 families of the Illuminati gathered, and the grandmother of the Illuminati, A. Collins, at the time, sat on the great throne with her two sons standing beside her. They checked in on the council's progress, establishing Satan's one-world government. Then, seven satanic children in white came in, and the mother approved them by tapping her snake scepter. Seven more children were sacrificed, and the names of the Illuminati's satanic children were written out in the sacrificed children's blood. What a day. That was, that <laughs> right? was awesome. That was so cool. But also the grandmother of the Illuminati. Uh, yeah, they have a grandmother. Like, they just jumped straight to grandmother. They just jumped straight to grandmother, yeah. Okay. That is the cool. grandmother. Uh, there's a space in there. Oh! oh I was like, what's up, grandma? Like, <laughs> I know. The grandma the of the Grandmother. Oh, okay. okay. That makes way more sense yeah. than just the grandmother. It's still... So that grandmother with the, her two sons at her feet, probably one of those was John Todd. Huh. Oh. Okay. In this event, right? Because it's, 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 it's Springmeyer telling the story, and he doesn't say that he got it from John Todd directly, but he did. Like, this is a John Todd story. Sounds like it. Yeah. So, although Todd has a clear hand in Springmeyer's account, he, Todd actually does not control Springmeyer's narrative. Springmeyer suggests, as we've sort of been hinting at here, uh, or directly saying, that John Todd developed multiple personality disorder as a result of his Illuminati training. We're not saying it's a result of his Illuminati training. I, I suspect he might have a dissociative identity because of childhood trauma. Um, these multiple personalities for Springmeyer explain why he toggled between being an occultist, a Christian, a karate instructor, and a sexual predator. We haven't gotten to the karate instructor yet. That's coming. This is karate instructor. Further, it appears that after his conversion to Christ, he received so much lack of understanding and persecution from Christians that he backslid for a period of time, but was brought back to Christ by the repeated message, Jesus loves you. I know of no one who has openly talked about the Collins family. I could be wrong. He may not be legitimate. But I feel so strongly from what I have experienced that I honestly believe that the man is just what he says he is. Springmeyer relays Todd's jailhouse tape as a message from a hierarchy survivor recorded on the 26th of February, 1991. I'm John Todd, and this tape is being made in a prison cell in South Carolina. It is very late at night. All the inmates are locked down in their cells, but you'll still hear noise on and off. And if the guard comes by, I'll, I'll have to stop and be very quiet. The reason for this tape is that I've been framed and then put in prison by orders of U.S. Senator from South Carolina, Strom Thurmond. I want to say... I want to say this now before I go on. Whoever receives a copy of this tape, I'm asking you to make a copy or copies and get this word out. Make phone calls. Let people know what has happened to me. In Columbia, South Carolina, Todd claimed to be launching a publishing company and invited female college students to apply to work for him. 
One of these applicants he forced to take pills at knife point before raping her, warning her before she left that a network of men was protecting him. A second woman he'd compelled to perform oral sex on him, as well as two karate students he'd molested, came forward, and Todd was successfully prosecuted and sent to prison. So, uh, just a reminder that in the South, Todd is working as a karate instructor. Oh my God! In his right, so this is like he this he becomes legitimately dangerous in the 1980s. You know, uh, he always sort of was underneath the surface. He was always packing a pistol and using it to threaten people. But uh, and he he was always, you know, molesting girls or or, I don't know, pressuring them into sexual relationships, statutory rape. Uh, But now he's he's you know, this is a violent rape, a rape with a deadly weapon. In his jailhouse tapes, Todd attacked the case against him in his characteristically convoluted style. He claimed that the officer who refused to allow him to take a polygraph was promoted for his efforts, that the police obtained a search warrant to retrieve a knife involved in the rape, but collected documents having nothing to do with the crime. The documents pertained, apparently, to Todd's involvement with the Christian Underground, an organization we mentioned earlier, but now I'll tell you what they do. They were formed to oppose state laws that allowed for the trial and conviction of parents as child abusers without hearing from the parents themselves. The Christian underground was apparently very worried about child psychologists stealing children from their parents on trumped-up charges. In truth, this was not an entirely unreasonable concern at the time period, given the false memories coming through children's mouths during the Satanic Panic, which we talk about in our Satanic Panic episode. We start seeing how 90% of the people being tried were fundamentalist Christians, so an underground was formed. It contained Christian survivalists, but it contained everyday people also. I was arrested for one rape, I was suspected in three and maybe as many as 80. Family members on their way home from work at 5.30 in the evening were hearing this on the radio. Never before was anybody that wasn't murdered ever given this much publicity. The federal prosecutor uh, wanted to make a deal in 1988 if Todd would turn over the names of the people in the Christian underground, but Todd refused. He goes on to detail a complex scheme involving Strom Thurmond's friend, Senator Strom Thurmond, and a woman he was involved with who was somehow the supervisor of the women who accused Todd of rape. Strom Strom Thurmond's uh, claim to fame, he was a senator, uh, he was one of the oldest senators, I think he was in his 90s when he died, uh, and I believe he voted against the civil rights bill. (laughs) So, anyhow. Todd believed that Strom Thurmond was targeting him because he'd been removed from the Board of Regents at Bob Jones University after Todd revealed his high-level involvement in the Freemasons. This was kind of true. Todd made the tape after he'd been in prison for four years. An older couple had been helping him financially throughout his incarceration, but Springmeyer stepped in when the couple was no longer able or willing to support Todd. Send checks, says Springmeyer in his book, made out... To the, in the amount of $5 to Johnny Todd, care of the South Carolina Department of Corrections. Todd was released from prison in 2004 and committed to the Behavioral Disorder Unit, where he died on the 10th of November, 2007. And that's the story of John Todd. Jesus Christ. Like, it, seemed like, it seemed like way many, or way too many stories put together. To be one person. (laughs) It's a complex tale, isn't it? It really takes two episodes to get through all of the complexities of what John Todd was and did. And said he did. 
Yeah, because it's a lot to break down and figure out. All right, this is an epilogue. Rob's take. So what can we make of the strange case of Reverend Todd and Mr. Collins? You get the, Did you get my reference there? The strange case? Of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes, and Mr. Yeah, Hyde. Yeah. There's something to be said for the idea that the conspiracy theorist projects onto the world their horror at their own demons. But even accepting that Todd had serious documented issues differentiating fantasy from reality, it's clear that he was also inclined to just make things up. I think Todd genuinely believed in his broad conspiracy theory. I also think he knew that there was no such thing as the necromonicon uh, and was <laughs> right. And he had to known, right? And he was well aware that he had never met the Beatles or Charles Manson. He also had to have known, at least on some level, that he was working through personal grudges against Melody Land and Isaac Bonowitz, among others, in his theories. He invented these things in the spirit of the ends justifying the means. They made his conspiracy theory seem more substantive, and the conspiracy theory was the real deal in Todd's eyes. So the theory was more important than the details. You see what I mean? Yeah. The bigger reality that we glimpse between the many faces of Johnny Todd has to do with the transformation of conspiracy theory itself from the early modernist days of Hislop, Webster, and Miller to the less racist but more sensational stories of people like Cooper, Kathy O'Brien, and John Todd. The conspiracy theorist gives a performance of fear, but knowingly constructs a postmodern pastiche or simulation of conspiracy that only holds together through the invocation of familiar feared entities and does not have any internal coherence. Star Wars, etc. Star Wars, rock music, like the things Christians fear, just lumped together. The conspiracy theory suffers from selective amnesia. It selects the historical evidence that bolsters the concept of a conspiracy while overlooking contradictory evidence. The act of overlooking is not one of disproving. Unlike the academic, seeking out and arguing against the counter-argument, the conspiracy theorist simply pretends it isn't there. The conspiracy revival dates to the 1920s and 1930s, the twilight of what we humanists call modernism. The age of modernism, which lasted through the 19th century into the 20th, is a time period in which people who think tended to think that they could find an underlying theory of everything. Does this sound familiar, guys? We talked about modernism in class. Yeah. Einstein famously sought his grand unified theory of physics. In the world of culture, we had Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels arguing that all of society could be explained in economic terms. Even things that don't seem to have anything to do with the economy go back to money if we ask Marx and Engels. The things we find attractive, for example, are based on the things that are most expensive. It's more expensive now to be thin and tan because cheap food is fattening, time to get fit is hard to schedule, and we spend most of our time indoors. And so we're turned on by thin tan people. Or at least that's what Pornhub thinks. (laughs) Sigmund... (laughs) Sorry. uh, Zing. Just a, a quick side note. It's also uh, that logic goes to like the ancient civilizations would always often prize like thicker women because that means that they had like had eaten and food and it was kind of scarce at that point. Yeah, yeah, they were more uh, the it's wealth. Kind of the inverse now. Yeah, but that, that yeah. kind of theory, like I don't know, that's where that kind of comes from. It's I the guess. Marxist take. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there might be some validity to it, but certainly the money isn't everything. 
it's not absolute in any sense. We, we can go to Sigmund Freud, who was also a modernist, uh, and he created his own version of this idea when he tried to explain all of society as a product of subconscious drives, mostly sexual ones. So this was a great time to be a conspiracy theorist, the 1920s, 1930s, 19-teens, uh, because uh, a great time to create a conspiracy theory in which one secret cabal was working behind the scenes to shape humanity according to their mold. During the conspiracy revival era, theorists believed they could prove the existence of conspiracy using actual historical evidence and documentation. Well, as we talked about in the first half of our series here, they would cite the known practices of the Gnostics, the records of the trials of the Templars, books written by self-proclaimed Rosicrucians, and most problematically, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The work of Nesta Helen Webster and Edith Starr Miller, Lady Queenborough, looked more like a historical study, tracing a pattern of action across millennia to prove the existence of the conspiracy. But... When we move into the 1960s with conspiracy theorists like John Todd, we move past the modern era. And the 1960s broke with the idea that there is an underlying theory of everything. These theories of everything didn't apply to everyone, the postmodern, postmodern, right? After the modern theorist said. Freud was just psychoanalyzing himself with interesting insights, but nothing that we could apply to everyone everywhere. And Marx's theories might work in the Western world, but their application to places like Papua New Guinea or even China don't translate as easily. In our postmodern world, we've broken the link between the grand historical arc and anything like documentation. If you look at the theorist Milton William Cooper who we talked about on our last episode and who we will talk about again on our next episode, or two episodes ago, I should say. You'll see lots of documents found on fax machines or in garage sales or passed by people who know people. Somehow they land with Cooper. But the plots are disjointed and don't really inform anything like a single agenda. Uh, So if we look at the work of somebody like uh, Edith Starr Miller or Webster, they're taking their time to really outline this clear, cohesive plot. But Cooper doesn't care. It's just a bunch of documents that, you know, imply there's stuff going on behind the scenes, but he doesn't actually identify what the plot is. Michael Aquino's Temple of Said is trying to mind control the public into worshiping Lucifer, and the Illuminati are trying to blow up Jupiter with their spacecraft Galileo. But what, what do these things have to do with each other? Cooper doesn't tell us. Cooper doesn't care. That's the postmodern conspiracy. Microevidence for grand, incomprehensible plots is the stock and trade of the postmodern conspiracy. Phrases in Beyonce songs or props in Harry Potter movies. Have you guys heard <laughs> conspiracy theories, right? The, or like podcasts? Yes. Yeah. There are no manifestos detailing dark designs or surreptitious accounts of backroom rituals. The postmodern conspiracy theorist picks and chooses isolated movie frames or phrases taken out of context in political speeches, icons, and corporate logos, joins them all together in an arc that holds together sort of like a collage. These things never belong together, but when you put them together, they feel like something more than themselves. But that feeling is really just a feeling. There's nothing substantive to it. An alleged pedophile ring in the Democratic Party, an imagined code in, a hacked, in hacked Democratic Party emails, Anthony Weiner, satanic ritual abuse, and a family pizza restaurant in the Chevy Chase neighborhood in Washington, D.C. All, put these things together and you have a QAnon plot. The Beatles, Star Wars, Gardnerian Witchcraft, Salem, the Rothschilds, the Freemasons, Charles Manson. 
you have a John Todd plot. Pizzagate is just the return of John, John Todd, but he's now calling himself QAnon. Todd may have disappeared from our collective cultural consciousness, but his influence survives. On our next and final episode in this occult conspiracy series, we will follow John Todd's legacy to its most extreme conclusion in the story of a vast human trafficking ring of brainwashed sex slaves operated by people at the highest levels of business culture and government. Next time on Occult Confessions, Kathy O'Brien's Occult Mind Control Conspiracy and the CIA's Project Monarch. We are pre-recorded so we don't have an order of confessors for you this day. Uh, but please, by all means, jump on, give us a review. Uh, join us on the Facebook group. Uh, interact with us any way you can. We love to have you reach out and contact us. Our sources for this episode series included Jesse Walker's The United States of Paranoia, Edward E. Plowman, The Legend of John Todd in Christianity Today, that issue from February 2nd, 1979. My thanks to Shannon Landers for uh, getting the copy off of the uh, shelves of the University of Maryland College Park Libraries for me. Uh, Jess Walter, Every Knee Shall Bow. Gary Metz, The John Todd Story in Cornerstone Magazine from the 6th of October, 2006. Fritz Springmeyer's Bloodlines of the Illuminati. Jeffrey Melnick's Creepy Crawling, Colon, Charles Manson and the Many Lives of America's Most Infamous Family. Jack Chick's Spellbound and the Broken Cross, Volumes 10 and 2 respectively in the Crusader series. Also transcripts of the John Todd Lecture. Uh, from the Elton Maryland Baptist Church in 1979, compiled by Campbell M. Gold in 2009. Uh, And I do want to make a note uh, that you can search John Todd's uh, tapes. Just search John Todd tape on YouTube. Uh, And if you want to listen to them, um, it's an experience. So they're there. All right. Uh, John, I promised that this was your opportunity to bring us on home. Oh. All right. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. Okay, show off. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I've been listening to Olivia oh. for like way too long. Whew. We survived. Boy, that was a trip. That was a lot. Yes. Oh. Any closing Ooh. thoughts for the people on our way out the door here? Stay safe. Don't be John Todd. <laughs> Yeah, no. Don't be John Todd. <laughs> Please. I was joined, uh, as with the last episode, by Bree Litterall, our uh, metallurgic prophet. Goodbye. Also, John uh, John Cook, our patron progenitor. Bye-bye. All right. That's, uh, that's us. Uh, my name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors and your host. We will be back in two weeks with the final episode in our conspiracy theory uh, series uh, the occult conspiracy series I should say uh, and that will be our occult mind control episode uh, and then we'll be moving on Whew, boy I am exhausted we've gotten through COVID in this series when everything else wow alright uh, that's it Signing off. We'll catch you next time. Olivia will be back, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be back at the Occult Conspiracies. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my kid's losing it. Daddy's almost done. Give Daddy one more minute. All right, guys, give me 
15 seconds. Okay. Sorry. Almost there. We're so close. Where were we? 